So I'm Brett Levi. I'm the family pastor at First Baptist Georgetown, and my wife, I'm kidding. How are y'all doing? It doesn't feel like it's been a long time, but it's been like a month or so. Hey, do, do what? Not for me, it hasn't been. Um, I'm, am I a little hot? Okay, you got it. Let me pray for us real quick, and then we're going to jump into this, uh, the greatest session four. God, thank you for the opportunity to be here with parents and to be a part of walking with them in the discipleship process of teenagers. Lord, we know that, that, that what we talk about today, your word is powerful to transform our lives and that those of us in the room who are parents have the opportunity to disciple our kids, Lord. And so I pray that you would give us the ability to hear at two levels today, one for us and one as a parent. Lord, I pray that we would walk out of here different than we walked in. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. It has, it's, it's been pretty interesting. The other day, Michael and I were talking, and um, I said, hey, is the, is the message up online yet? And he said, no, it's not. It's going up later. And I said, because there's a parent looking for it. And he said, oh, who's looking for it? Oh, it's you, isn't it? And I said, yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard it yet. And uh, I said, I need that yap up because I'm now using it now in a way that I never did before, that I have a sixth grader, like, like I'm in your world. So if you actually are here listening, I'm listening now on uh, the uh, podcast and then scheduling time to, with Rayleigh, walk through some of those questions and, and talk through this greatest series. So it's been fun. So I don't know if you know this. There's actually some science behind it. I'll talk about it in a second. But the, you ever notice that some people look a lot like their pets? You ever seen pictures like that? I, I got some for you in case you haven't seen it. So, so here's some, right? Exhibit A. Okay, exhibit B of pets who look like their owners. It's pretty good, right? I mean, exhibit C. I see, this is like so cute. Exhibit D. I love this one. That's fantastic. Exhibit E. And I think exhibit F is, I think, the last one. Oh, no, I think we have one more after this. Yes. That's, that's, just, that's just cute, and that's just creepy uh, between the two of them. There's actually science behind it, and I read that, and, I, and honestly, I called bull. I was like, there's, there's no way. But what scientists say is that actually even when we are buying a pet, that what, what the term they use is familiarity in the form of a scientific understanding of it matters. And you tend to buy a pet that either looks like you, looks like a family member, or has the same personality as you. Now, that's not always the case, but they say that there's actually some statistical uh, relevance that that happens that we feel comfortable. If we do that with our pets, it, it makes sense, and, and we know because we live it, that we do that with other people, right? We hang around people that are a lot like us, people who dress like us, think like us, believe like us, maybe from your perspective, parent like you do. And the people who don't, who do things different, we tend to, we, we tend to have some more distance between them. That's just, it's, it's natural to humanity. It's how we live a lot. For example, and you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but this will be primarily true. Now, there's always outliers. There's always like, well, that's not me. But generally speaking, if you think about the people that you hang around with, that you spend your free time with, they are most likely in the same socioeconomic level you are. Right? They are. If, 
If you are middle class or upper socioeconomic, you probably don't have a lot of people you hang out with on a regular basis that get government help. Why is that? We move towards people who are generally like us. If you're the, if you're the rule keeper, you tend to keep a distance from the people who push the envelope or the, the rule breakers. Like if you are at lunch and you've got an hour of lunch and, and some people at work, they're all, hey, do you want to go? We'll grab lunch. And, and Rick is on your team and Rick is the one who's always late back from lunch because he doesn't really care that you're the rule follower. You won't get in the car and go to lunch with Rick. You won't. You'll, you'll get in with the other rule followers so because you connect more with them. If you're a believer, which probably most of you in the room are, if you have five neighbors around you and you know very little about your neighbors except for one, wears outside in his yard on a regular basis a shirt that in big bold letters says, God is dead. Of your five neighbors, he's probably the last one you're going to hang out with and invite to dinner or even engage when they're outside. Because it's different. We, we tend to put people into two different categories. We put people in the, in the we bucket, and we put people in the they bucket. That's what we do. The people who are like me, that think like me, have the same politics as me, that, that, that raise their kids, that, that's my people, that's what we do. And everyone else is kind of in the they category, the they bucket. And it's, and it's not that, that we hate the people that are in the they bucket, it's just if we were honest, we'd say they're, they're so different from us in the way they think and what they believe, it's a lot more work to spend time with and get to know and to understand. So we hang out with, we hang out with the we's. We feel more comfortable with them. We even do it, we'll do it, you can do it at a family level. So my wife, many of you know her, and I think I've told this story years ago, but my wife grew up in a little small country town, six-man football um, so her graduating class had 11 people in it, just tiny. Everybody knows everybody, elementary school through high schools, all in the same building. She also grew up in a house with her mom and dad who lived on the same property that her dad's parents lived on. Just, it was family property. Her mom's parents lived right down the road. Her aunt and uncle lived right past them. Her sister got married to a guy in town. They moved into a house just across the highway. So everybody, everybody went to church together, everybody saw each other all the time, and so there's this family connection that my family never experienced. Because of that, they also did, once a year, the big family reunion. And so people would come in from neighboring counties, not really all over the world, uh, maybe from other parts of the state, they would come in to Lake Proctor uh, for this once a year thing, and, and, and you, were, you were categorized by the patriarch that was your family line. So Amanda was connected to the Vineyard family, and everybody in the Vineyard family, every reunion would wear red. And this patriarch of the family, their, their line would wear green, and this group would wear yellow, and that type thing. And that was foreign to me, because we didn't, I didn't grow up with family reunions. And so the first time we went, it's also you're like the in-law, it's kind of awkward, because it's, it's, you know, it's a bunch of people that you don't know. One of my favorite years was the year that instead of red shirts, the women all got these big straw hats, like in a picture with a giant red flower on the front. Now, Amanda's not like, when I say she's not fashion conscious, I mean, she always looks great, but I mean, she can make Old Navy look great. Like, she, she doesn't spend lots of money on, like, you know, expensive things, 
But this is not in the closet uh, for her. A big straw hat with a giant red flower, nor is it in her sister's closet. And that's how the vineyard girls are showing up to the reunion. And I mean, she was beside herself. And I remember she was like, I'm, I am not wearing it. And so it, it became as a good husband. It's a part of the family, making sure that it was on at all times. Uh, and so anytime she would take it off, I'd tell my mother-in-law, that she doesn't have her hat on. Like, she's going to get lost out here at Proctor Lake. And, but here is what was interesting. When you go, and there's hundreds of people there, and you walk into where everybody's eating, there's food set up, and as you look around, over here in this circle is a bunch of straw hats with red flowers, and over here are a lot of green shirts all huddled up, and over here is a lot of yellow shirts all huddled up, and there's some orange shirts all huddled up, and I remember thinking, wait, I thought y'all all came because you liked each other. Like, I thought the point of the reunion was for the red hats to go, oh, I haven't seen the green shirt since last year, but that's not how it happened. They actually huddled up to the people that they're closest to, their wees, even at the family reunion. See it in how we respond to people that look different than us, dress different than us, think different from us. When we take kids on a mission trip to London, as we've done in the past, I actually have to be less vigilant in London than in other places. And here's why. London is probably one, I don't want to say the word dangerous, because it's not dangerous, but if you're putting on a scale of places we go on mission trips, that's the one where, where I would want to be most vigilant. It's another country. They have different laws. I mean, if you got stopped by a police officer or whatever they're called, a bobby, or I don't know those, whatever they're called, um, it's different than if you were talking to a police officer. In this. It's a whole different country. But what's interesting, I've got to be more vigilant uh, in London than I do in places like New Orleans because our teenagers are more likely to wander off or not pay attention to something. And so you can be walking through a crowded area with lots of people, uh, but because they all look the same, you'll, you'll see teenagers kind of stop at a store and they're looking and they're talking to a friend. And so you have to be, hey, let's go. Stay in the group. We're going. Now, when we go to New Orleans with our senior trip, it's totally different. You would think as a parent, hey, if you're in the Lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans, I want you to be watching my kids closely, because it's, it is a more crime-ridden place. But I don't, I don't really have to be vigilant. I can't keep them out of my back pocket when we're walking through, like, the lower. I'm like, can I breathe? Give me some space. I mean, they're, like, clumped up and huddled up, because we're walking through an area of New Orleans where people don't look like them. Music's not the same. They don't think like them, possibly. Uh, the dress is different. And there is this uncomfortableness because it is so easy for us to categorize people into we's and they's by if they look like me, think like me, have the same politics as me, have the same jobs, and things like that. So we's and they's. In fact, we're going to look at the scripture in one second. In fact, as parents, sometimes we're even guilty of making these categories because you've told your kids things like this. Don't hang out with them is usually the bad kids, the ones who are getting in trouble. You go, hey, don't, I don't want to see you hanging around that group. Now, to be fair, like I, as a parent of a teenager, for my teenager and for my elementary schooler and for my own life, the people who I want to be closest in their life are other believers. 
I want them to have iron sharpening iron. I want their best friend to be someone who believes the same things that they do. So that's fair. But sometimes we cross the line and we go, I don't want you hanging out with them. I don't want you talking to them. And again, it's the good intentions because we don't want the hanging out and the talking light to end up becoming I believe like them and have values like them. But I would suggest to you that if we go back through Scripture, which we will see today, that oftentimes in the categories of we's and them's, if Jesus actually did categorize people, he seemed to hang out with the them's a lot more than the we's. In fact, last week in here, we talked about, I don't even know if I can say this as a Baptist pastor, when the lost are found, there's drinks all around. Um, but since Michael did, I'll go ahead and say We talked about when, when the lost are found, when lost people come to know Jesus, there's this celebration in heaven, there's a party. And if, if you want to experience that, if you want to be in on, on the work that the Holy Spirit's doing and seeing lost people found and seeing people breathe eternally for the first time, I mean, it's an incredible opportunity. If, if you were a part of somebody coming to know Jesus, well, in reality... We're going to have to spend the time with the, the thems, people who are not used to being around. And what we have to do is what Jesus did. We have to turn people from a category into a conversation. You turn people to, from a category, I see you, to a conversation of who you really are. Now, I want us to go to a, might be a familiar passage, John chapter 4. And we're going to see Jesus actually do this. And it's not a one-time instance. He did it on a regular basis. John chapter 4, it's the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. I'm going to let you get there. I'm actually going to be reading um, from the New Living Translation. Here we go, John chapter 4, verse 4. Actually, we'll start in verse 3 so you can get the context. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. Verse 4, he had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to drink water, and Jesus said to her, Please, give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Stop there for a second because the culture and the context of this passage help us understand what's going on here. You see, Jesus is on his way to Galilee, and he's going to passed through an area of Samaria, which for the early reader of this story, the first time here, this would have been odd because the Jews had a pretty strong racial prejudice against Samaritans. The Samaritans were people who uh, were part Jew and part whoever else lived in the area. And so for a Jew who was a full-blooded Jew, they looked at that as betrayal of, of God's of God's call to them. It was a betrayal of religion. It was a betrayal of the faith that you would marry somebody who doesn't believe in, in the one true God. You are worse than the people who are just pagan. And so for a Jew, it wasn't uncommon if you were going from point A to point B and Samaria was in the middle of point A to point B and it was the fastest way to get there. It wasn't uncommon to take the long way around just to avoid that region so that you didn't have to socialize, be seen with, talk to, or be around a Samaritan. The, the prejudice was that strong. And yet Jesus, we find him in this, this, this place. He's in Samaria. It's a surprising place. It's not just a surprising place because most Jewish rabbis weren't there, but a surprising person shows up. We have this woman who comes to draw water. 
Jesus, again, he, he starts talking to her, which, again, in the culture of that day would have been odd for a, a man, for a Jewish rabbi, to start a conversation with, with a woman would have been an uncomfortable situation. In fact, as we read on the story, and you can read on your own, we're going to skip around some, she, she even questions, like, why, why are you talking to me? Surprising place, Samaria, surprising person, Jesus talking to this woman, but it's not just the person, it's who she is. We find out early on that she's come, it's noontime. It's, it's, it's hot in the Middle East at noon. And she's all by herself. Normally, the women of the city, when they came to draw water, they came together in a large group in the morning. One, because it was cooler. They came together, one, because of safety, and two, because it's genetic. It's the same reason why women go to the bathroom together in groups today. Uh, there's something inside the woman that makes them go together. So they, they would come as a group and draw water. They've already done that for the day and gone. It's noon. Jesus is sitting there, heat of the day. Here comes this woman all by herself. She's isolated and alone, which tells us that Jesus isn't just talking to a Samaritan. He's not just talking to a Samaritan woman. He's talking to a sinner. He's talking to a woman who in her own culture, in her own village, has become a category of the they's, and she stands, she stands alone. She's the one that even her people wouldn't talk to or spend time with. And Jesus goes out of his way to start this conversation with this woman, and here's what he says. Look in verse 13. They have a conversation back and forth about the water, and Jesus replied in verse 13, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. He's talking about the water in the well. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Jesus says, you, you're settling for something that's earthly. I've got something that's eternal. And as he begins to talk to her about this living water that he provides, that, 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 that refreshes anew every day, that is, the, that is the outpouring of life, she says, yes, please. I want some of that. How do I get it? And Jesus says to her, he says, hey, go call your husband. And she goes, well, about that. I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five, and the guy you're living with right now is not your husband. Busted. That's what happens. You can't keep secrets from God himself. And God, Jesus knew. And yet, what does that tell us? Not only did Jesus know, the city knew. That's why she's out all alone. She's had five different husbands in a village where that was not acceptable. She's living with a guy, and her neighbors go, you know what? We don't want to be around you. We want to separate ourselves from you. You can't come get water with us. You're on your own. And Jesus goes out of his way to Samaria, to the woman, to the sinner, to have the conversation with her to say, hey, there's a better way. I've got living water. And I want you to look at verse 25 and 26. Because they get into a theological discussion. And then in verse 25, it says, The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. The one who's called the Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Verse 26, Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Now, if you're not a student of the Scripture, let, let me just say, this is huge. Because we're in John chapter the first person that Jesus clearly revealed himself to as the Messiah. 
was a Samaritan woman who had had five husbands and was living with a guy. Because for Jesus, she wasn't a category. She was a conversation. And of all the people they could have revealed himself to, and, and you know, too, there's other times where Jesus healed people, and he would say, hey, don't say anything. Because there was a timeline to the cross. I don't want you to jump the timeline and get ahead. I don't want everybody to know who I am right away. For this woman, he says, I'm the Messiah. And she goes back to her city and begins to become the very, or one of the very first evangelists for the Messiah of all time. And look at how the chapter closes in verse 39. It says, many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village, so he stayed for two, for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus, do you see the power here? Jesus went and initiated, I mean, sought out the woman, initiated the conversation, and entrusted her with something that could change her life, inspired her to be something better than she was. But she was, she was a category for everybody else. And if we're going to really walk in the love God and love people calling that Jesus has given us, then like Jesus, we've got to be able to see people as a conversation and not as a category. We've got to be able to say, you know what, I want to know who you are. I want to hear your story. I want to have a relationship with you, even though we're different. I want to know you because, because who knows what God might do. An entire village was changed because Jesus saw the woman not as a category, but as a conversation. So let me, let me ask you to do two things this week. They're both, one's kind of an intellectual thing, one's a do. They're both, they're both easy. Michael talked a few weeks ago about, you know, as an uh, application-oriented stage, we always talk about, hey, here's what you can go do, because we want you to do the Word and not just hear it, and you can't get burdened down with, I got this to do, and this to do, and this to do. I'll give you some easy things. The first thing, if you're taking notes, they're going to come up on the screen. The first thing is this, is understand the way you see people isn't always accurate. The categories that you and I place on people, most of the time, most of the time, it's not a good category. Most of the time, they're, they're much deeper of a person. They've got things going on in their lives that if you just knew, it would change the way you see them. So I'm going to confess to you. A couple of months ago, I guess, one of Amanda's aunts passed away. And so we went up to the funeral, and the family was all gathered. And one of Amanda's cousins uh, had gotten married, and they had a baby here pretty recently. And so we're standing in the funeral home, and we've greeted everybody. And now we're just waiting as people come and people go. And my wife sees this little newborn baby that's her cousin's baby. I got a picture. That, that's actually him. Cute little baby. And Amanda comes up, and she goes, oh, the mom's holding her. And she goes, oh, can I hold him? And the mom goes, are your shots all current? Excuse me? Like, what? When has that ever been asked? Has that ever been asked of you? And has never been asked of me. Like, uh, okay. <laughs> and so, and, my, and I was standing there. And, and so I'm like, oh, this is, this is going to be as fun as the Red Hat Day. Like, uh, <laughs> let's watch this. Popcorn. And uh, Amanda, Amanda's like, uh, huh? And she's like, Are your shot, is your shot records all up? And later, Amanda's like, I didn't, I didn't know what to say. I, I thought, well, I haven't had lockjaw, so I must have tetanus. They're good. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not in fifth grade anymore. Like, 
I remember the last time I got a shot for something? Like, and so we leave. So now here's the thing. If you know me well, you know what was going through my brain. We got a live one on our hands. This woman is crazy. Shot records. I'm going to go sneeze on your baby just so your baby will be healthy later because that's how it works. Like, get a little hepatitis rubbed in on that baby's head. It won't have any. It'll be fine when it gets older. So here's the confession, though, because I say that so you can laugh, but I was in the wrong. I categorized. So one of the things that I've been doing, also, if you know me well, you'll, you'll really appreciate this. Uh, I'm working on myself and just trying to grow as a better leader and uh, walk close to the Lord. So one of the things that I've been doing this year uh, is working on emotional intelligence, which if you know me well, you know I have none whatsoever at all. Um, so I read the book Emotional Intelligence 2.0. I took the quiz, failed all four levels of, of emotional intelligence, and I took the, the level, the four categories that I failed the most, and I started working on. They give you some tools to work through. And what I was worst at was the uh, social awareness. Like if I come into the room and you're having a bad day, just don't expect me to pick up on that. Like I would come in and go, you're crying because you just got fired from your job, your kid got thrown in jail this week, and, and you've lost a loved one. And I come in and I go, hey, can you drive for Sunday serve day? And you go, oh, you just won't believe what happened in my week. And I go, well, tell me about it. But before you do, can, can you drive? And you down. I'm not good at it. So one of the tools that I've been working on is when you go into a room, before you go someplace or go into a meeting or meet with people, think through in advance who's going to be there, what's going to be there, so that you can be more emotionally aware when you walk in the room. So I've been working on that. So we're, we've left the funeral. We've gone back home. I've made a ton of jokes about the situation. And then we're going back for uh, Christmas. And in the meantime, now to be fair, I wasn't working on emotional intelligence when I was making the jokes. I was in between. So I started thinking about, okay, we're going back to the in-laws. And I started thinking, who's going to be there? And I started thinking through, like, oh, which it was a good price. I was like, oh, well, it was Amanda's aunt who had passed away. I was like, this is going to be uh, her uncle's first Christmas without his wife. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, that's, that's heavy. Like that, I, I need to be aware of that. And his sons. And then, and then I thought about Andrea. On the baby. And it didn't take much for the Holy Spirit to go, you know what? She's a first-time mom. She's a new mom who's scared, who probably doesn't have people in her life going, you know what? It's going to be okay. And you know what? In a couple years, this little precious baby is going to eat dirt. It's going to happen. Like that's, that, they're going to get stuff on them, and, it's, and, and he'll survive. There's, just, there's probably nobody in your life saying that. There's, there's no parenting teen class that's, that's helping out in an extended session on a Sunday with little kids and, and talking to a parent along the way. There may not be a nursery uh, ministry where somebody's taking that loved one, <coughs> that baby, and, and loving them and having conversations back and forth with the parent. And, and all of a sudden, I, she went from a category of, of, oh, we got a crazy one, to realizing, you know what? When I have a conversation with her, I'm going to handle it very differently because now I don't see her as a category. I see her as a, a person who's worthy of a conversation. Does that make sense? So sometimes there, there's some people that you're going to go to work with tomorrow that, that are a category for you. You've got a neighbor that's a category. There might be somebody that you go down and sit next to in worship, and they're a category for you. Oh, that's a hand raiser over there. 
Uh, they must be Pentecostal. I uh, got lost on the way. And they're category for you. But they've got to become a conversation. Just like Jesus did with the Samaritan woman. Here, here's the second thing I'm going to ask you to do. This week, and this is easy. With that person that's easy to put in a category, would you just have a five-minute conversation with them? If you're not ready for a spiritual conversation yet, that's okay. You just have a five-minute conversation this week with somebody who's outside of your comfort zone, somebody that you would have categorized, and in that five minutes, just hear their story. And I'm giving you the past. It doesn't have to be a spiritual conversation because here's what will happen. As you begin to practice conversations with people who are previously categories, the Holy Spirit's going to do a work, and those conversations are going to come the spiritual conversations. And you're going to have some, some moments where you look at some people differently than you ever saw them before, and you just might, because of that, have the opportunity to share the gospel with them and see their life and their village forever changed. 2017, there was a, a bomb that went off in Manchester, England. It was a concert, thousands of people there. One of the people there was a guy named Chris Parker. Chris Parker is a 33-year-old homeless gentleman. Chris showed up at the concert, not because he had a ticket, because he knew there'd be thousands of people there and he could beg for money. And when the bomb went off and tragedy struck and chaos ensued, as people were running away from the bomb site, Chris was walking in. And he was seen with one little girl pulling shrapnel out of her face. And then moving over to a lady and pulling shrapnel out of her arm. He was seen taking a shirt for a lady in an explosion who'd lost both of her legs. He was seen wrapping her up in a t-shirt. And there were pictures of him holding a lady who had been injured fatally, and he held her as she passed away and died in his arms. People saw that. The news got a hold of it and wrote the story about it. And they interviewed him, and I wrote, I wrote it down on a note. I want to read you one of the things that that Chris Parker said. And I asked him about it. He said, just because I'm homeless doesn't mean I haven't got a heart or I'm not human still. I'd like to think someone would come and help me if I needed help. I thought, would they? For a homeless beggar? Would they really go help him? Would you? Or would he be a category? Homeless guy. Because he's a category. He's homeless, which means he's an alcoholic and he does drugs and he's generally a bad person. That is interesting that the guy who's probably categorized by almost everyone said, I went to help because I assumed people would come help me because they'd see me as human still. Well, here's what I know. Jesus, who didn't see people as categories but conversations, would have walked into Chris Parker's life and shared the life-changing, eternity-changing good news. So we're going to love God and love people. Who this week is going to move from a category into a conversation for you? Close with this. I hope you'll have conversations with your teenagers today using the YAP, you don't know how to use the yap, Michael or myself or probably somebody in your circle can show you how to do it, to have some conversation with the kids. Because as a parent, as a disciple maker of our kids, 
We need to raise up a generation of young believers who don't see people in categories but in conversations. But it's dual-edged. This isn't about you as a parent only. It's about you as a follower of Jesus. So who will you see that you move from a category to a conversation and how will you help your teenagers do the same? Let's pray and then you're going to have some time to talk this through. Lord, thank you so much for being able to come back and share John 4 with our parents. God, I thank you for what you're doing in the homes that are represented around these circles. God, that we would have homes that are outposts for the gospel as parents. We're taking our kids along to our neighborhoods and our schools and our work to disciple them and help them see those people around us as conversations and not categories. God, I pray that this week, that everyone in this room would begin to rethink the way they see people and they spend five minutes practicing a conversation with somebody that was previously in a category. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.